Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we are talking to Steve Fadden, research manager, Google and lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Information. We talked to Steve about his blended experience in both the technology sector and the educational field, how learning happens in multidisciplinary teams, implicit versus explicit knowledge transmission, three principles of incorporating ethics into product development, how to address the positionality of a researcher, the role of collaboration and using questions to reframe the conversation, three pieces of advice for social scientists considering the business sector, and lastly, he gives advice to businesses considering to hire social scientists. We hope you enjoy it. Um, hi friends, we are here tonight with Steve Fadden, Research Manager Google and lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Information. Hi, Steve. Hi there. How are you doing? Great. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited that we, after our back and forth, we managed to, we managed to make it happen. Um, and I'm particularly excited to, um, to talk about your background and profile and um, share you with our listeners. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm delighted. Yeah. Uh, well, before we dive into your particular experience, Steve, can you tell me more about you? What, what has your career path been so far with, um, with technology and research? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is always a challenging question for me because when I when I think about my own career path, it, it's one of those situations where I had all of these great ideas and then as soon as I started seeing them unfold, I got distracted and started something else. Um, but when I try to uh, condense it down to a story, I think it I think it starts with my undergraduate education in psychology where I quickly became interested in education. So I thought I was going to become a teacher. And halfway through my, my undergraduate experience, I stumbled upon eye-tracking research that was happening at the University of Massachusetts. And I very quickly became involved um, almost day and night in the work that was happening in that lab, doing research on psycholinguistics. And um, I was fascinated by the role of phonology in helping people understand language. Mm -hmm. And that led me to my master's degree, where I continued with the eye-tracking work and was still in the reading field, but started branching out into visual perception as well. And like many people in PhD-focused programs, I started to, to flag in terms of my energy and uh, took a little bit of time off to try to regroup and figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up because it just felt like I was doing research where you had participants in these studies and you're collecting lots and lots of data in order to build a theory And um, it just didn't feel very rewarding. It didn't feel like it had any kind of applied reality. And fortunately, at the University of Illinois, where I was doing my graduate schooling, they had a program called Engineering Psychology, which is essentially human factors or um, HCI that's um, more at a systems level. And there I was able to get involved in looking at human attention, perception, memory, decision-making, and learning within specific systems contexts. So the main context that we looked at at Illinois was aviation. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate to find a lab and an advisor um, who let me explore um, research projects around how pilots um, experience the 
um, the challenge of flying under you know complex situations, high workload, high stress, mm-hmm. and um, eventually did a PhD looking at how to design uh, displays that improve performance while also hopefully improving safety. And that, that kind of got me hooked on this <laughs> idea of engineering psychology and studying people as well as the technologies, technologies that they use. So that's, that's kind of how I was introduced to the world of industry. Um, and then throughout my, my industry path, anybody who looks at my, you know, my career history will see a pretty peripatetic um, approach where I kind of went to aerospace and then I went into network management and hardware software technology and consumer products and, and even management consulting and education. Um, but I think throughout that path, what I learned was that regardless of the type of organization you're working for and regardless of the types of problems and processes and tools that you might be building or informing, it ultimately is always about the people at the center. And so for me, it's always been about focusing on how people learn about their environment, how they learn about what their what their roles and goals are. And um, I would say that kind of at the midpoint of my career, at least maybe um, two-thirds into the first 20 years of my career, I took a little detour and went into education for almost six years and found myself in a research role serving as a um, as a researcher but also a consultant and also um, a person seeking grants to really understand systems and training and education for for students who learn differently so we were in an organization where all students had some kind of learning difference so it could be attention deficit it could be dyslexia it could be um, you know they might be on the autism spectrum or have Asperger's and the idea was how do we do research and um, implementation projects to understand what works best for students who struggle in more conventional educational settings. And um, since then, I've been back in um, the technology industry now for, gosh, how long? <laughs> I think I think it's been eight years um, since I left education, and, um, and, I've, and I've loved every minute of it. And then the last thing I've, I haven't mentioned is pretty much throughout my entire career, even when I was in graduate school, I, I knew I had the bug for teaching. I just love the educational process, and I love what I can learn as I'm going through the teaching process. And I also love the ability to kind of see when students and mentees have that spark of insight, and it changes the way they think, which then changes the way you think, because it, it kind of makes the entire world, as you know, potentially crumble. And it, it just it's just a really amazing generative type of process to be part of. Mm. So that's my journey, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's 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 really nice. Um, how how do you see your blended experience kind of uh, be um, as an advantage inside the the the, the corporate space? How do people mm. perceive it? How do they uh, how do they to a certain extent um, make use of it for their projects? Yeah, that's a it's that's a great question, and I, I admit I've been thinking about this this type of question for a long time, and. I think my answer would be different if I answered you 15 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago. But but answering that question today, um, I think unlike many of the other folks that you interview on your podcast and probably you yourself, um, I have a, you know, as a psychologist and as an educator, I, I tend to have a focus on a person, like an individual mm-hmm. being as the, the unit of focus, if, if you will. And 
uh, so instead of a society, right, or a context or, a, or a, um, a larger group. And so from my perspective, what I see is that the field of, of social science and the various fields that, that we are exposed to, they help us understand the whole human being. And I think in many organizations, um, there's a tendency to focus on the problem you're trying to solve or the feature you're trying to build or the service that you're trying to design. And you kind of forget that at the end of this whole equation of problems, there's a human who needs to figure everything out and, mm -hmm. and ultimately needs to move forward with their life. And so for me, coming from my background as an, exper uh, sorry, as an engineering psychologist, I see a benefit to understanding people's needs and their values and their thoughts and their decision-making process. But also, and this has been more recent, really the role of their feelings and, you know, the impact of their culture and their environment on them as, you know, beings with a situated sense of cognition. So, yeah, I think, I, I think it ultimately provides a better respect and understanding for that. And then, of course, the various types of techniques that we can actually bring to bear to understand these problems and then when needed, you know, build hypotheses around them and see does, does this approach work better than that approach. Um, and also, uh, from a business perspective, understand how do I measure this? How do I tie this back to the objectives that my organization or that my company cares about mm -hmm. so that it's not just about studying feelings for feelings, yeah. even though that is fun. Um, how do we know that people who feel more positive are likely to, to be more engaged or, or have some other kinds of positive outcomes? Regarding also your background in education and your current involvement in education, would that, would that be also be something that affects how you um, approach how people learn technology, how, um, mm -hmm. how they engage with it? Um, just a tangent to that, I'm, I'm now inside a project where we're, we're looking very intimately into the relationship people build with technological objects, um, mm -hmm. and particularly around the phenomenology of learning technology and, and, mm -hmm. and the practice of learning technology. And we've been, because we are into that right now, we're looking into uh, methods of, of, of learning, education. Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. I, I think maybe my colleagues and my students might, might argue otherwise. But one of the things that I, I believe I have a deep respect for, definitely not a deep understanding for, for what to do with, but, but I, I think a deep respect for, is that learning happens at its own pace mm. and every, everyone learns in their own way. And especially back when I was working in the field of learning disabilities or learning differences, as I think many prefer to call it, Um, you get a sense that there is no one right way. And even when I think about structuring my course materials um, for when I lecture, and I, I love the term lecturer because I think it's a, it sounds so formal, but it's actually you know, ideally not what we do as educators. Um, I, I think as, a, as an educator, my approach is to kind of think about every hour that I'm teaching or that I'm involved in teaching or mentoring as a sequence of chunks and each chunk is dedicated toward a different type of style or a different type of need so that maybe there's 10 minutes of lecture or 15 minutes of lecture but then there are people who learn best through discussion so there needs to be some time for that and then there's people who need time to reflect and to think and so there's time set aside for that and then there's people who learn best only when they're interacting and engaging with others on problems that they're trying to solve as a collective unit And um, from an educational philosophy perspective, for me, 
I find myself falling mostly in line with the social constructivist um, social constructivist camp. So the challenge that I think that I see with my style of teaching is that it it's a style that's heavily conversational. And I know that there are many students who don't really learn well through conversation. Maybe they even have anxiety so that they shut down during conversation. So I want to make sure that everybody has their chance to learn in their own way. And then, of course, there's also this generative aspect of education. There are ways that people learn that I don't know. And so I think that the students should be part of that process. So if we're building a service or if we're building a tool, Mm -hmm. then how are the, the users, if you will, the people who are engaging with that tool or service, how are they learning about it and how are they understanding it? And Maybe, yeah, maybe having a tooltip in a certain location of a user interface makes sense. But what if you don't learn through reading? Or what if you don't have the attentional capacity at that time because you're under stress or under pressure or you just don't notice that yeah. tooltip? What's what's that person's likelihood of, of being able to, to learn more about this process? So I would argue it's, it's, it's more of a system level type of approach. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, for many projects that I've worked on, there's only so much you can do. So maybe sometimes it's only a tooltip that that's all we can get. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you if you, if you, you know, move away from the person that uses the product into the, the, the teams that actually build the product, how does uh, learning happen there? How do you get the, these people that have uh, maybe very different backgrounds, uh, sometimes very different uh, diversity of, uh, yeah. of, of all kinds, no? Um, how do you get them to, to, to learn together and uh, to apply that learning into the product development process? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the, um, like, you know, recently, and by recently, I mean within the last six or seven years that I've been working in the field of analytics, um, I think there's a, there's a question of um, differential understanding, right? So if I'm in an organization and there are decision makers and they need data to make decisions. They, have, they, they come to that with a certain level of understanding of data. But there's also an organization that probably owns the data and accesses the data and curates the data for presentation to those people and they know something about the data. And then there's, there's folks who need to deal with the consequences of the data. So a decision's been made, so what do I do as a result of that? And so as I've worked with different um, organizations and understanding how do people understand data, I think it really comes down to a, a multimodal approach. It's basically understanding from a systems level what are the you know what are the artifacts that are in place that afford education and learning, and then what are the processes that mm-hmm. afford education and learning, and then finally who are the stakeholders and the individuals who are maybe directly doing some of that teaching and um, facilitating the learning process. So kind of thinking of the system as a whole and mapping out those flows and those channels to understand where might it be best for us maybe to come in, mm-hmm. um, perhaps what might be a best practice. So maybe maybe I'm working for a product that's just showing a metric or a piece of data. Um, is there a way that through this product I can communicate to people that talks about, for example, data governance and says, hey, if you're working on this this area, um, we know that having a data dictionary might be helpful um, or having a, you know, the secret decoder ring, as we like to call it. Yeah. Um, where does that where does that land? And then in, in another completely different domain, I would say is education. So back to when I work in, in the education realm, it was a lot about understanding international 
um, and national approaches to education. So what we saw in the United States in, let's say, an inner city somewhere versus a rural location somewhere versus a suburb somewhere might be very different from one another. And all of those might be very different than what we might see in a country like, say, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so understanding how, how knowledge is transmitted is, is really important. And I think I, we used to call it organizational assessment. You know, I think many people in the industry would just call it a needs assessment or even a gap analysis. Um, but you need to kind of map out where are the pockets of information and where are the individuals who need that information and how is that transmission happening. And I think a lot of times that transmission is tacit, so you don't even know it's happening, um, or that transmission is happening through you know, various forms of social communication mm. that are inadvertent, right? so maybe body language or just how we hold ourselves. And then there are times when that communication comes from sources of authority, right? So it might be coming from a government, it might be coming from a, um, a certain stakeholder group that a family or that an individual holds in high regard. And so understanding what those influences are, even though you might only be building a tool, um, is really critical for, for figuring out how this thing you're building or you're influencing is going to have a chance of being successful. Hmm. Yeah, and, and do you see... Uh part of this learning process or this this decodification of data being also done uh, implicitly explicitly like how do you how do you see it being uh, performed i mean i would argue it's 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 both but the design slash research challenge is mm-hmm. how to make the implicit explicit yeah yeah and and so when you see these implicit communication challenge sorry in, implicit communication channels you need to ask yourself as a designer or researcher, what are the implications for this thing that I'm building? So I have an example, um, mm-hmm. and I won't, I, I'm going to hide some of the details just to <laughs> protect the innocent. I was working on a project, this is a long time ago, but I was working on a project to understand how to implement um, disability services in a country that doesn't have a formalized dis- disability service program. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we were working for a, a generous benefactor who wanted to build up disability services in this university setting. And we were going to, um, they wanted to basically have like a disability services center, you know, kind of typical what you find in the United States um, and in other countries where students will go and they'll either go for accommodations in the U.S., maybe they'll go for learning services, maybe they'll go for assistive technology access, that sort of thing. The situation that we were in was one in a culture that hadn't really begun to think about learning disabilities, what they were, Mm -hmm. and what their role was in society. And I mean, you know, if you think about it, the, no, the whole notion of disability is a constructed notion, right? There's, yes. there's really no such thing as ability or disability. There's just people who do what they do. Um, once you add design or requirements or policies and processes, now you have this notion of ability versus disability. And so working in a culture where they really hadn't tackled some of these critical disability issues made it really challenging for us because as we start, continued doing our observational research and as we started doing in-depth interviews and as we started doing some some um, studies that are probably t- today better thought of as you know deep hanging out types of methods, we learned that 
the people in power, the, the administrators, and some of the teachers basically wanted to have a space for students to go for help. But that's a real fine line between having a space to go to help versus a ghetto where we kind of hold all the students who are struggling and, and are challenged and aren't working as well as the, you know, the other students. And the students themselves were extremely mindful of this. And they, they I think, through their non-communicated messages, told us very clearly that if we build a center, it will probably fail because simply walking through that door marks you. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mark you just in that school. It kind of marks you for life Mm -hmm. because it was a small community. Everybody knows everybody. And nobody who wants to, quote, pass, unquote, um, as, you know, as a person without some kind of difference, nobody would walk through those doors. And so that gave us some really interesting information purely from observation. And then, and then what do you do with that, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you take that implicitly learned message yeah. and actually act on it? So for us, as a research team, we basically made the proposal back to our benefactors and said, this needs to come from, you know, from on high. And unless you have somebody in the administration, somebody with power and authority who is going to identify as a person receiving these services, then you shouldn't expect any student to walk through those things. And there was a lot of, um, I think, conversation around, well, maybe we just mandate that students must go there, or maybe we'll mandate that mm-hmm. all students go there. And so we started playing these games of, of what would that look like, but ultimately it came down to a recognition that there needed to be an individual or a set of individuals who made it okay um, to use this service. And then, and even then, there's still going to be a lot of students and stakeholders who aren't comfortable with this. So what is their, what's their route yeah. um, going to be in order uh, to get services and, and you know, mm. to, have a, to have a chance in this organization of, of getting what they need to be successful? Yeah. And then finally, you know, the biggest message that I don't want to bury here is is we we tried to pursue a universal design approach that basically said, how do you take every classroom experience that you currently have mm-hmm. and every community experience that you currently have, and how do you make that accessible to as many people as possible without any one person having to self-identify as a person with a need? Mm-hmm. How 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 did that turn out? Like how do they took this recommendation <laughs> forward? Yeah, they, they took it well. I mean, it, I would argue it's still it's still being worked out. Um, you know, it's it's been it's been many years, but there this experiment is still running. And um, I think in certain pockets it's worked well, and other pockets it has not. And um, you know, for the good or for the bad, I think it's helped raise awareness for this institution and also for the local communities that are supporting it. Um, it's helped them understand that it, the solution needs to be within the full system, the families, the community members, the respected elders, the, you know, the authorities, the administration, everybody needs to be part of this, um, part of the solution in order to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole message around inclusivity and not marking, uh, particular groups, right. Of being lacking of something. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's funny when I think about it, because part of the challenge was that the benefactor made as a requirement the expectation that the work we were doing would be associated with this center, which would, of course, have their name on it. Um, right? they, you, know, you get naming rights when you give lots of money to a thing. Um, 
and we were basically saying, no, you know, anything that you reify yeah. as a space is going to become a space that people don't want to go to. So yes. it's fine to have a center for advancing learning. You know, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, indivi- you know, the, the individuals who are supporting this grant yeah. were saying, no, 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 we want this to be the, you know, the center for disability services or something like that. And so it was a really tough nut yeah. to crack. I wanted to ask you about uh, the process through which you incorporate ethics in a, in a product or research team, because I think, you know, like you started to touch on it a bit with this, with this project. But um, what, what, what would be some of those powerful questions or processes that, um, that work um, to help incorporate ethics, but also kind of break it down into, into digestible sure. chunks? Okay. Yeah. So for this, yeah, and I think that product, that, that project was um, probably something that's too big for, mm-hmm. for this question because, you know, ethics, I think if you asked people in different parts of the world what their definition of ethics is, I, th- or I think they would basically say things that have common themes, but I think the notion of ethics is also grounded in our nationality. And so if you ask somebody from China versus somebody from one part of the United States versus, let's say, somebody from, um, you know, a, pick a, com- a, a country in Europe, mm-hmm. we might have different definitions that come from the, the constructs of, of ethical behavior that we are exposed to every day. And so the, the ethics framework that I work within and, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm a psychologist, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of my world has been, has been colored by that, but it comes out of the, you know, the Belmont report. So it was the United States, 1970s national commission for the protection of human subjects of biomedical and behavioral research, um, came out with this report that basically said, here is a framework and a set of principles through which ethical organizations must operate. And, and there are three um, principles that I think are really critical, and, and, and I don't think any of these will be news to any of your, your listeners and, and probably people working in this space. But when I've thought about projects, you know, the first thing you need to think about is this notion that the Belmont Report calls respect for persons, right? And it's this notion that people are independent, autonomous, smart individuals who are capable about ma- of making informed choices and decisions for themselves and before the Belmont report came out there was a lot of research both in, in psychology but also in med- in medicine much of it extremely you know terrible work that was done in the United States um, that basically had a very arrogant attitude about people it was this whole notion that no no I'm a doctor so I know better mm-hmm. um, I'm a psychologist I know better I'm a researcher I know better um, and so the notion was that we were making, you know, we, I'm sorry, we, the, the people doing the work, I'm, I'm definitely, hopefully not one of the people who was doing that work um, back in the 70s or before, but like we as professionals know better than others is a completely wrong-headed view. So we need to understand what does the community feel about this and what, what constitutes respect mm-hmm. and what decisions should we absolutely not make? So I think a big question there is, you know, what biases, what assumptions am I bringing to the table? And as best as possible, turn those into hypotheses and then test them. And there are many easy ways to test them, right? You can look at the literature, you can look at policies and, and procedures that are coming in from the government or from other agencies. 
but then you also you know work with people within the communities to understand what does respect really mean and how does that translate for for this organization or this community or this group and then the second principle is this and i love it it's this this idea of beneficence and non-maleficence hmm. um, you know maximize the good and do no harm right hmm. and so that sounds great but the problem is there's always multiple stakeholders in any in any initiative hmm. and so what is good for you or good for the stakeholder of interest might not be good for another stakeholder or for the individuals who are involved in a project. So, for example, I work in analytics, and um, and this doesn't come from any specific product or, or company, but, but one question that I have as a researcher is there are so many different ways to display data, right? And, in fact, a while ago, I forgot the author, but there's there's a book called How to Lie with Statistics, and it's, mm. it's, it's, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek um, approach, but... I think the point is well taken, and that is there's, when you have data, there are lots of different ways that you can present the data to get your point across and to influence a decision toward your benefit. And I just looked it up. It's um, How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. Um, it looks like it was published in, in 1954. Mm -hmm. So the notion is that if I have access to data, I can present it in certain ways. And so for me, as a person who works in analytics, in general, I want to present data as purely as possible. But the reality is most of my stakeholders, mm. they probably don't want to see data as purely as possible, especially if it's billions of rows of raw data. Mm. <laughs> right? They want mm -hmm. to know, like, how much money are we making? You know, how engaged are our, our, our product users? How effective is this campaign? You know, whatever the answer is to their question. And so as soon as we start coming up with aggregate numbers and measures of central tendency, we are, you know, we're kind of shading the truth a little bit. Mm. And so... Beneficence and non-maleficence means different things to different people. And so I think a good researcher needs to think about who are the communities involved in this project that I'm working on and how are these things defined? And then another component to that is who's not involved, right? Like it's easy if you're in a business meeting or a stakeholder meeting and you look around the table and you realize, oh, you know, it's only men or, oh, it's only... It's mm -hmm. only people from certain socioeconomic status. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to ask the question. I mean, it's hard for people to ask the question, but I think it's e an easy process to say, who's not here? And what questions are not being raised? And how can we get insight into what those answers might be? Um, I, think, I think ethical research requires that. And then the last, the last principle is just this principle of, of fairness and justice. Um, the whole notion of, don't exploit people, right? Don't hmm. don't do things that are that are unfair, and um, and again, there's a contextual element to that. I, I think there are ground truths in all of these, you know, these points in kind of the notion of respect and beneficence versus non-maleficence, and and justice. But when we think about it from the, the the sharp end of the equation, you know, the the user of a product or the community who is part of a service or a system, uh, there are nuanced definitions and approaches to to what comprises this notion of justice and fairness. And so, I think we have to do our groundwork to understand that better. Mm. I hope that at least sort of answered your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a it's it's a it's a big question, and um, I think the 
what I struggle with this with these concepts uh, is not necessarily intellectually understanding them, but when you see them in action, um, the answers that you that you that you have they can be so wildly different depending on yes. so many factors. And then as a team, you know, you might have yeah seven people in the room, ten people in the room, and then you ask this one of these questions, and you get so many different um, ways of looking into it. So. I, I- I agree. And yeah. Let me add, and it's one of the frustrations I had when I worked in the consulting world, because I think there's such a power dynamic in consulting where you don't have access to all of the key stakeholders. Um, and by stakeholders, I don't mean people involved in the consulting project, but everybody involved in the community that's impacted by it. And so, and I see this in the industry as well, where there's this notion of we're working on a project Maybe there's a solution already in mind. Maybe it's a feature. Um, and so the questions are often channeled through the lens of that product, that service, that feature. And they're not channeled through the larger lens of, mm-hmm. you know, what is the social impact? What is yeah. the community yeah. impact? What is the group impact of this thing? Again, back to the, the example of, of disabilities. It's, yeah, it's a wonderful thing, I think, to make sure that education is open and beneficial to as many people as possible. And, and if the lever to use is the lever of disability, because that has political and, um, you know, authoritative force before, behind it, then so be it. But in so doing, we might introduce new problems. And so we need to really understand all of the stakeholders and their perspectives. And, and I say this knowing full well that especially for those of us who are working with a deadline or with limited amounts of resources, there's always um, uh, corners that, that, that yeah. kind of have to be cut, right? And so in the consulting world, that was always a really, really big challenge. Connected to this, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on, on the positionality of a researcher within these dynamics of power? Because yeah. depending on, you know, the position that you take and what are the, you can, you can also be silenced from multiple, um, <laughs> from multiple direction because of multiple restraining factors, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you as a researcher kind of, um, deconstruct some of the, your own positionality and pick and choose or, or maybe take some parts of action, um, within that context, you know? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to gather my thoughts to give you a, a semi-coherent answer. I, I, think, I think part of the answer comes down to what is your role as a member of a team that is trying to solve a problem? And one, you know, one phrase that always rattles around my head when I think about this is, you know, it's always better to collaborate than to try to come up with an answer solo. Hmm. And so I think the researcher is in a really key role to, you know, again, if you're in a true partnership, um, which is so hard to get in, in many of those consulting engagements and also really hard to get in, in, in many industry settings as well, um, I think we can be great partners by reframing questions. Um, and this whole notion of reframing a question into an exploration mm. is something that I've seen have real like mind opening um, effects mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. teams. So a team might be thinking about a feature, but if you reframe a question, 
it might completely upend the entire way the team is thinking about it. Mm. And, and sometimes it can say, the team could say, well, actually, why are we thinking about this feature? We don't even need this product. <laughs> and so I think there's something in that question process. Mm. But doing it as a collaborative partner, not doing it as the, the know-it-all researcher who has an answer to everything. And, and, and one of the things that I, that I always try to implement in any organization that I'm working with is, 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 a, is a, an approach that um, Peter Senge calls the, the learning, uh, the, I think he called it the learning organization. It comes from, um, he wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline. It's basically systems thinking. Mm. And the idea is that any group of people need to be driven by, you know, having some kind of personal mastery goal, by having awareness of each other's mental models. Basically, what are the assumptions? What drives our thinking? Um, and then where are we driving toward? What's our shared vision? And how are we learning as a team? And, and this, this idea of systems thinking is how do I wrap those four pieces together in an effort to find a common vision, conclusion, purpose, mission, what, what have you, hmm. for this organization? I think we as researchers can start asking the questions that make Maybe I won't call it ethics, but ethical choices. Then, you know, as a social scientist, you kind of get trained uh, on asking <laughs> questions. And yeah. I remember like one of the most key things in a, in a research proposal is the question that you want to ask and, and how, how is it going to get answered? So I, what would you advise, for example, a social scientist that, um, you know, trained in this, um, in this environment that is interested in entering the tech space? Like what would be a good a path of inquiry to one think about is this is this the is this the space for me or what how do i realize if it's the space for me yeah i agree I, it, th and this is one so this is one i have a, a pseudo prepared answer to simply mm -hmm. because i i think i've had this conversation at least over yeah. the last 10 years yeah um with students and mentees and even coworkers as we're trying to understand the role of what we in my industry call user experience mm. um, and, and how we, we grapple with that. I, I, think, I think my number one advice, if you will, would be to you know, be a good researcher and study the differences between business and academia. Um, there are different drivers, there are different levers, there are different goals, um, there are different incentive, structure, in, in, incentive structures in business than in academia. And, and while there's, you know, differences between businesses, a startup versus a small business versus a large business versus like a huge enterprise company versus a consulting firm, let's say, um, those differences, I think, are all relatively small compared mm. to the difference between industry and academia. And having worked in both camps, I can say that in academia that there, there is this notion that There's a kind of a notion of almost infinite time, not infinite resource, but infinite time, right? I'm going to spend as much time as I need to find the truth. Mm. And when I publish it, it's going to be an amazing, you know, amazing piece. Um, but the reality is that, that that doesn't exist in industry. And I think anybody who just reads up mm. on industry will realize that everything in industry is driven to a certain tempo. And that tempo is driven by expectations of the community, of, of consumers, stakeholders, whomever your, your business is serving. And, and then, of course, your internal um, leaders. And so you might have, maybe it's a quarterly timeline. Maybe it's an every two-week timeline for groups that are working on sprints. Maybe it's a you know every year timeline. But there's going to be a timeline. Hmm. And so I think for a person 
coming from a social science background, thinking about going into industry, you have to ask yourself, how comfortable am I with a time constraint? And, and I would say one of the things that I try to counsel folks is to always have an opinion on something. And I think for researchers, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. So you might, you might be doing a study. Let's say you're doing an observational study, and mm-hmm. let's say it's going to take two weeks. After your first day of work, of doing your, your observations, let's say you come back to, you know, you're not, you're not doing a deep hangout, you're just literally doing an observation, and you're going back to a hotel, or you're going back to a, to, a, to a home, and let's say you bump into your boss or your sponsor, and they say, hey, what have you learned today? I think for an anthropologist, that would be crazy. It's like, wait, I, I'm, I'm, I'm barely even coming up with an internal language to understand what I'm seeing. Mm. But from a business perspective, you just spend an entire day <laughs> of my money and my time I want you to have an opinion. Like you need to have some kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not of what's going on. Maybe it's not of what we should do. But you need to be prepared yeah. with a statement. And the statement can't be, we need more research. Mm-hmm. Like you need to come up with some <laughs> concise, pithy statement yeah. that's going to satisfy them. And, they, and it, can, it can be couched, right? It's like, well, based on what I saw today, I have, I have a hypothesis mm-hmm. about this t- there seems to be a type of individual who has more power than other types of individuals. So I'm really going to start focusing my, my analysis on that in addition mm. to a million things. Mm. Like you need to really be aware of, of having a message at all times, right? It's all about like your personal brand as a researcher. What's my message today? Um, and then I think also there's a role of, um, of how to tell a compelling story. And I think, un- unfortunately, many of us in the sciences, we do a really good job of explaining, <laughs> of explaining that we don't know the answer mm-hmm. in lots of words, right? It's like, I'm going to give you a hundred reasons why I don't know the answer. Yeah. And then at the end of it, maybe I'll give you a hypothesis to the answer, but I'm not going to actually give you an answer. I think, I think learning how to tell a good, compelling story, learning journalistic storytelling methods is really critical. If you don't have those take a class, take a workshop and learn that because that will benefit you so much um, Mm. in industry. And then, and then related to this also is this idea of, of um, understanding how to use different kinds of data. So qualitative, quantitative, um, maybe coming from like an AI model, but how do I use different kinds of data to explain this story Mm. and how do I do that? in a way that my stakeholders will understand it. Mm. Um, all of those are really key. Yeah. No, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so the last point I'll say is, is you have to be comfortable with what I call good enough decision-making. Like you need to emphasize speed over completeness. And I was actually just, just mentioning this to a colleague earlier today. Back when I was in grad school, there was a, there was a story, it might be apocryphal, but there was a story about an advisor who was always focused on searching for the truth. And this person was so focused on searching for the truth that they never actually published anything because they didn't have any data that they felt conclusively proved this truth. And so the argument against this advisor was, you are so conservative, you're not even wrong. (laughs) Like you have done this research for years, but because you haven't published one jot of information, people don't even know what you're thinking. Mm. And the world has moved on. Mm. And so I think researchers in industry need to kind of take that type of criticism to heart 
and realize that if I don't have something to say this week, I'm not even wrong. And sometimes it's better to be wrong um, than to be unknown. What about on the other side, Steve? You know, you would talk about how social scientists need to kind of adjust their worldview to that of business. But what about the business side? Like if they're looking into branching out into, um, into social science and incorporating that in the team, what type of adjustments do they need to make? Totally. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think part of it comes down to that conversation that we were having about ethics and getting, mm. getting your teammates to understand some of the ethical questions and ramifications you're thinking about. Um, I would say, you know, if I'm trying to construct a, a concise message and follow my own advice, I would say that a company needs to be willing to meet your social scientist halfway. Um, you as an organization need to commit to, to developing a shared understanding of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and how social science can help get you there. Mm. Um, I think you as a company need to be really clear about your goals. Your, you know, what are the goals of your organization? What are the goals of the team? What are the needs and the trade-offs that you're willing to live with? Mm. And make those clear to the researcher or the scientist that you're working with. If you're going to say, and this is something I argue quite a bit, you know, as, as researchers in the psychology field, um, especially cognitive and perceptual psychology, you know, there's lots of talk about statistical reliability, right? I want statistical significance of P point, you know, P less than 0.05 or 0.01. Um, if we think on that, you know, in that world, then that's going to really slow us down as we make decisions for a company. So I think the company needs to say, hey, I don't, I don't care about P.05, P.01. I'm okay with P.6, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or I, I like the analogy of like if I'm gambling and somebody flips a coin and the coin is biased to come up heads 55% of the time, then am I willing to make a wager that it's going to come up heads? Well, mm-hmm. if I know that there's a bias, yeah, I'll, I'll be more likely to make that wager. Um, so my argument with researchers that I work with is always, how do you bias that coin as much as possible? If you mm-hmm. only have one week or two weeks to do your research, mm-hmm. how, you, how can you make it so that it's not just a random decision, that at least it's a, you know, it's a biased coin flip? Um, before we close this off, because I know that we have a bit uh, over our time limit. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's, um, it's great. I wanted to ask you about what's next. And um, I know that you are speaking at um, a new X conference somewhere in the world. So, um, and you've made it your annual event. So I wonder if you could just say a few words uh, for those of our speakers that would love to meet you in person or hear yeah. you also talk. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so what's, what's literally coming up next is I'm about to start um, spring semester at um, UC Berkeley. So I'm getting ready for a new crop of students um, who are going to uh, challenge me and engage me and change the way <laughs> I think. Um, so I'm really looking forward toward that. Um, in terms of speaking engagements, I, I try to make it an annual, it's almost a pilgrimage now, um, but I try to make an annual appearance at um, one of my favorite international conferences, which is UX India. Um, it's a conference that's been running for over 10 years, and, and I, I really find it enjoyable to go to that conference because they bring in such a diverse array of speakers as well as participants and attendees from all different kinds of, of industries and academic experiences and walks of life that I learn so much when I go to UX India. So every year, I, um, I reach out to the conference committee and I say, hey, I have an idea 
<laughs> can I speak? And unfortunately, they haven't they haven't said no. So I'm you know fingers crossed. We'll I'll be at uh, UX India probably sometime. It's typically around October okay. timeframe. Um, and otherwise, I. Um, I'm always looking for, for opportunities to share, but because of just the workload from the yeah. day job and teaching, it's really challenging. But I, I really look forward from um, you and your future speakers to hearing about um, new places to explore on the conference circuit. Steve, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, and thank you so much for, for being with us today. Uh, thank you very much. It was an honor. And um, I really love what you've been doing with this. Thank you again. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.